Good morning, church family. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Today we continue in this series, five weeks called Good Sex, a biblical look at delight, desire, and design. In 2006, when I began college at a fairly large public school in California, I joined up immediately with two different organizations opposite sides of what you might call the, uh, well, we'll just, we'll just call it a spectrum, Campus Crusade for Christ and Pi Kappa Phi Fraternity. <laughs> now, I'd come from a small high school, a fairly sheltered existence, and for me, this is one way to shrink the giganticness of this particular school down. And while I met some amazing people, some amazing men in my time, no doubt learned a lot, the fraternity life was an eye-opening experience for me. Between the 600 people or so that would come through our doors on party nights to the raids with sororities to other social events on our calendar, I found myself pretty quickly surrounded by casual sex. It was different. From one night stands to booty calls to friends with benefits, underneath all of that behavior, there was a giant assumption that pretty much saturated the air. And it sounds something like this. It's just sex. It's just sex. And today the question that I want to ask is, is it really just sex? Is it really just sex? For that we turn 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 6, flee sexual immorality, verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. We're going to come back up to the very beginning of that, where it says flee sexual immorality, that, that word porneia in the, in the Greek, where we get pornography from. Flee porneia. Tim Keller offers us some assistance in defining this. Porneia refers to any sex other than sex with your spouse. In other words, while adultery is always fornication, fornication includes premarital sex as well as extramarital sex. Or adultery. Here's what today is going to look like. I'm going to show you my hand, give you my, my outline. First, we're going to begin with going over the historic views of sex in our culture. How have different peoples and places looked at sex over the years? Trying to ask the question, how has porneia invaded the culture so much that it's not just tolerated but affirmed? So we're going to look at the three historic views of sex. We're going to transition then to hookup culture and pornography in particular. Give some detail and lay of the land on those two things. Finally, looking at the warning God gives us against devaluing sex with these practices. Look at, the, look at that warning. And then how we see the consequences of that disobedience everywhere. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this is, a, this is an issue. Like we're going to talk about homosexuality at a later date. We're going to talk about gender transgenderism at a later date. Many of you, you hear those topics and you think, I can't relate. This day, today, this topic has affected a lot of the people in this room. It may be affecting you now. And so before we dive in, let's, let's pray. 
Lord, we ask that you would humble our hearts. I ask you that you would provide an, uh, just a, a new measure of clarity. That may your word and its truth not just meet us, but confront us and ultimately transform us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three views, all right? The first view, historically speaking, I've, I've renamed them slightly for you all. It's called the sex is dirty view. I put the heady term for, I mean, I consider myself a nerd as well, but if you're in that camp, the heady term is in parentheses for you. This is the sex is dirty view. This is the view that looks so poorly on the human body as a part of our existence that it does whatever it can to minimize all of our bodily appetites, to suppress them. In this view, sex is not a means of pleasure or joy. Good sex is merely the kind of sex that leads to kids. Now, if you had to guess, where has this view been most common in history? In the church. Last service, someone yelled out, the Catholics! And, I'd, and I had to say, it's not just them. It's not just them, it's us too. In fact, as a, as a product of the 90s, early 2000s, some social commentators know that time period within the church as the toxic purity movement. So there's a lot of literature at the time. And toxic purity refers to adding or subtracting away from the full understanding of God's design for sex. And let's be real, God designed sex to be good. In fact, he made it to be awesome. I can say that. He meant it to be joyful and pleasurable. Genesis 1.31, when it says, God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came then morning, the sixth day. You know what he did on the sixth day? He made Adam and Eve, and he told them to have sex. And then he reflected and said, that's very good. Not just that, lots of other things, but it falls under the umbrella. We also have a full book of the Old Testament called the Song of Songs, which is all about marital intimacy. I'm just gonna read three verses because I don't make you too uncomfortable, okay? It says, while the king is on his couch, my perfume, this is the woman in the story speaking, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me. Let me just say, ladies, you want your husband to start doing the dishes, treat him like a sachet of myrrh. <laughs> Spending the night between my breasts, the one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of En Gedi. Now this view, sex is dirty, became so pervasive throughout the church that it actually, people came to this book and they, and, and they started writing commentaries, allegorizing the entirety of it. There's no way this can be about a man and a woman and sex and intimacy. This has to be about Jesus and the church. Now I'm not saying that you, you can't make that argument somewhere, but to completely allegorize the whole thing, to say that when the Song of Songs is spending the night between, he talks about spending the night between my breasts, uh, saying that Jesus wants to spend the night in the breasts of the church. Just some parts of it just don't seem to make sense. <laughs> First view, sex is dirty. Second view, sex is authentic expression. Whatever your sexual desires or passions are within this view, they are the truest expression of you. In this view, if you were going to put a cage around my sexuality, you might as well be putting a cage around me. To suppress my sexual desires is to suppress who I am. I found an illustration of this, not in the area of sex, and something else. 
And though I've never seen this movie, it's slightly before my time, I've heard this line referenced enough to know exactly what is going on, all right? And I know that there's plenty of sinners in this room who can quote this movie for me. Go ahead, put up the photo. At the end of Dirty Dancing, he says, no one puts baby. Yeah. No one puts baby in the corner. Because to tell her she couldn't dance was to tell her that she couldn't be her. That is the view of the romantic. Now, many of you who grew up with this movie, I've, I've, I've spoken to a few of you who say, the dad, Patrick Swayze becomes the villain once you're a parent. <laughs> now, we don't do this with other sorts of desires and inclinations. Can you imagine if we took this view when it came to eating? When a doctor told you you had to avoid certain foods for your benefit, you would get upset with the doctor for telling you that you just can't be you if you're not eating that food. Physical appetites, yes, they could be satiated, but within certain boundaries, or they become problematic or eventually destructive. Put another way, boundaries are an act of love. And we see that in scripture. We see that God draws boundaries around sex. God tells his people, you can't have sex with animals. That's a boundary. God tells his people, you can't have sex with your family, with your siblings, with your parents. That's a boundary. Over the last several years, certain states have begun to legalize incest so that you have high profile incidents of fathers marrying their daughters and having sex with them. Because within this view, to cage my sexuality is to cage me. Boundaries are an act of love. Third and finally, the last view. We'll call this the it's just sex view. And this is where we're gonna park for the remainder of our day. This is the view that undergirds the growing trend for our topics of today, hookup culture and pornography. This is the view that sex is just another physical appetite and should be treated like any other physical appetite. The first view had a low view of sex. The second had a very high view of sex. This is just kind of, eh, sex just is. And so good sex, therefore, is safe sex. And you just add a little parenthetical there and don't get an unwanted pregnancy sex. As long as you get that, then it's good. Peter Singer, professor of philosophy at Princeton, who Gary quoted last week. This is a man that gets to influence thousands, tens of thousands of, of people puts it this way, sex raises no unique moral issues at all. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on. But there's nothing special about sex in this respect. For the same could be said of decisions about driving a car. It's just sex. We get this in our media. This is the view that saturated my sex ed classes when I was in elementary, middle school, and high school. You just learn what you can about it. And as long as you do it safely and don't get her pregnant, it's good, it's fine. Here's the issue. The first view of sex, the sex is dirty, lacks the pleasure, the joy that God designed to come with sex. The second view, authentic expression, lacks the principles that God designed to give boundaries to sex to keep it good and not become self-destructive. The third view, it's just sex, lacks a beautiful purpose, 
with which God designed sex. Each of these are missing something gravely important. Each of these take a broken, partial understanding of sex and they leave something in the sexual experience to be desired. And so when we say, focusing in on the third one, it's just sex, we often reduce something designed to be beautiful, meaningful, purposeful, joyful, down into a selfish, self-serving, me-centered act. And we're gonna see that's a problem, not just theologically. In fact, if you are not a Christian or you don't believe in the Bible, my hope is you get to take away, take away some interesting factoids today because it's not just a theological issue, it's not just a problem because some old book calls it a problem or some old fuddy-duddy conservative traditionalist calls it a problem. It's a problem because this view, it's just sex, is actually hurting people. It's harming people physically. It's scarring them emotionally. It's destroying them relationally. And this view is wreaking havoc on both people and society. And two of the most common manifestations of this particular view are in hookup culture and porn. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to start by defining some terms. Hookup culture refers to a casual sexual encounter with someone with whom you are not in a committed relationship. And I got to read lots of studies this week. Generally within these studies, they would define it as someone you've known less than 30 days, oftentimes less than seven days. We're going to talk more about marriage and cohabitation at another time. This is what we mean by hookup culture. Paula England from Stanford University surveying with a team, 17,000 students, 20 universities, found that roughly 72% of both sexes had at least one hookup by the end of senior year. Men on average had 9.7, women 7.1. 72.6% of the students surveyed claimed that they kissed someone the same night they met them with 43.8% saying that they had sex with someone the same day they met them. That's hookup culture. So when you hear that term, hookup culture, that's what I'm specifically referring to. And while this study deals in college students, it's not limited to college students. There's a bunch of apps have made it plenty easy well after college. Bars have been around for a long time. When we say pornography, we are talking about consuming the printed or digital nakedness of another person, sometimes but not always while they're engaging in sexual acts. Pornography has grown massively in its accessibility with the rise of the internet and its inclusion, honestly, in really popular television shows. You can get porn online, you can get it in a magazine, you can get porn on Netflix. Some of you get your porn watching Game of Thrones or Yellowstone. No longer are the days right, where you have to stumble into a liquor store to fumble over a magazine rack or find one on the street like Gary mentioned last week. The enemy doesn't have to lure you to a porn site. For many of us, he can just bake pornography into a really good tasting television show and get you to consume it there. After all, it's just sex, right? It's a great show. It doesn't phase me. Why? It's just sex. Roughly 35% of all downloads from the internet are pornographic. Among college-aged men, 87% report using porn, 31% of women do the same. And while pornography, no doubt, has been an issue facing predominantly men, current research actually suggests one in three visits to a porn site are, are done by a woman. Women spend significantly more time on chat features on porn sites. And roughly 17% of women surveyed report struggling with porn addiction. 
Now again, the weight of this particular sermon is the fact that many of us in this room fall in this category or know someone close to us who does. Like this is real. I'm not saying this into a void. I'm saying this to real people. And many of us are wrestling with this. So I just, just want you to know, we're gonna come back to the healing and the hope that the gospel brings. We just, I wanna get through the problem that it is first. So that's hookup culture and porn. Now this is where the two-story concept that Gary talked about last week is really important for us to understand. He went through last week this, this division between myself, my person, and my body and how our culture has kind of gotten us away from the biblical view to see us as a mind operating a body as opposed to the biblical view, which would say you are your body. This division that exists. Now, some people would push back, perhaps rightfully so, with the question, I heard this, this once this week, what about when I die? My body goes in the ground. What is that, what happens to me? And to be honest, there's a lot of disagreement amongst theologians at what exactly happens to you after you die. But they all agree on one thing. Whatever it is that happens, it's temporary. God designed you on earth to be an embodied soul and he designed you for eternity to be an embodied soul. Whatever that is in the middle is not the original design. And we're called to value our bodies in the way God calls us to value our bodies as the design he gave us for who we are, being an embodied soul. Now, our particular topic today takes the same concept in slightly different direction. You see, because hookup culture and porn assume a similar kind of divide. Rana, uh, Donna Freitas, a researcher, puts it this way. Hookup culture creates a drastic divide between physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. So go ahead and put the next slide up there. Put the divide up there. This leads to the two stories showing again, it's a divide between emotional relationships and physical relationships. And we try to do our best to split these, to divide these up. I don't wanna be thinking, if, if, if I'm consuming pornography, I don't wanna think about the person that I'm consuming. I want them to be an object. I need to divorce emotional and physical. If I'm hooking up with someone that I don't really care about, I have to divorce emotional from the physical. And so the only thing that really determines whether or not it's good, again, is whether or not the bottom part, the physical part, is whether or not it's safe. So that's the, where, where I wanna challenge us. What if it's not safe? That's what people would say, what if it's not? Back to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Now, one of my Greek professors in school points something out here, and he's am among many others, that Paul in this chapter and in the greater context actually uses the word you and body interchangeably. And so Champa makes the argument that when this idea of sinning against yourself, that, that other sin is committed outside yourself, but with sexual sin, you are actually willingly sin sinning against you. It's not just something you're doing to the body part of you, you're doing it to you. It's a mechanism of harm and it hurts. And this, what, what Paul says here and what Champa comments, this actually plays out in the data. We're first gonna look up at hookup culture together. 
All right, we see the sexual encounters in whether in hookups or not, sexual encounters actually cause biochemical reactions in our bodies, important ones in our brain. Nancy Piercy, uh, the one, uh, we actually bought more of her books, they're back there, but she comments on this in her body. Imagine the surprise when scientists discovered that oxytocin is also released during sexual intercourse, especially but not exclusively in women. Consequently, the desire to attach to the other person when we have sex is not only an emotion, but part of our chemistry. As one sex therapist puts it, when we have intercourse, we create an involuntary chemical commitment. Men do something similar, but in their body, it's called vasopressin, not oxytocin. What does all this mean? Our body's making a physical commitment, or we're making a physical, or a, a biochemical promise to our bodies, I suppose you could put it. Well, we do that when we have sex. And for some people, they do it over and over and over again. And whether or not you feel like it, like you're making a commitment, your body's chemistry is being made a promise. And then that promise is being broken. And that doesn't come without consequences. We want the physical pleasure without the emotional commitment, but our issues, we wanna divorce the two, but we're simply not wired that way. Our brains aren't wired that way. We were not designed for it, which is why, honestly, hookup culture hurts. Now, last year, quoted a number of studies, a few of them coming out of BYU, talking about mental health and young people for this. And those were located in specific universities. I actually found one large study, a partnership, 10 universities, departments of psychology, epidemiology, and human development. Here was one of the uh, conclusions. College students who had recently engaged in casual sex reported lower levels of self-esteem, life satisfaction, and happiness. Casual sex was also positively associated with psychological distress. College students who had recently engaged in casual sex reported higher levels of general anxiety, social anxiety, and depression compared to college students who had not had recent casual sex. Sign me up, right? That sounds terrible. Hookup culture hurts. And as I read through study after study on this topic, unfortunately, it hurts women more than men. Drastically so. And that tells me that men... And culture, we got to step up. Had a conversation with a young man after last service about him and his relationship protecting the purity of the woman he's dating. Men need to step up and lead here. It's not just casual sex, but porn hurts as well. And porn comes with consequences. Thing about pornography, again, it actually changes your brain. Neuro, it's called neuroplasticity, but your brain will adapt to the experiences that you give it. Pornography, sexual experiences create neural pathways that over time we default to. This is part of the science behind addiction. It's fascinating. William Struthers, professor at Wheaton College, he writes this, the neural system trough along with neurotransmitters and hormones are the underlying physical realities of a man's experience. Each time that an unhealthy sexual pattern is repeated, a neurological, emotional, and spiritual erosion carves out a channel that will eventually develop into a canyon from which there's no escape. Let me put it to you this way. In the way your brain works, when you come to a decision, it's a lot like wanting to take a trail through a forest and you have two options, but both of the paths are very overgrown. And so whatever path you take, you are naturally going to clear it just by walking on it. And if you take it again, it's gonna be cleared a little bit more. You can tell a path where lots of people have been using it. 
And so when you come to that same decision again, and you see the overgrown path, and you see the one that's well-walked, you're going to take the well-walked path. Now put yourself in the situation where you're exposed to the nakedness or you're sexually attracted to someone, whatever it might be. And you're put in the, where you have to choose. Do I take that thought captive and move on? Or do I dwell on that thought? Pursue the arousal, masturbate later. And if that's the trip you take, the next time you encounter that image or whatever, you're gonna be more likely to take that path because it's been cleared. And then again, and again, and again until eventually the trough turns into a canyon, as our author puts it. It's part of the science behind addiction. There's a biochemical component to why good decisions become very, very hard when we allow triggers to take place. Porn changes your brain. And unfortunately, with this kind of addiction, people begin to struggle to relate in a healthy way to the people they're attracted to. Men struggle in particular to relate to women in a healthy way. They no longer see these people as someone to serve, but as a product to consume. Porn hurts relationships. Naomi Wolf, summarizing some research, puts it, it became clear that after a decade of having access to the internet, they were intimately familiar with porn, but intimacy in the hearts of the opposite sex were made an elusive mystery, than, more of an elusive mystery than ever adding dysfunction into God's design for relationships, even friendship. Porn hurts, hurts marriages. For those already in a married relationship, because while people are exposed to pornography, some people don't start using it regularly till after they get married. Research has found that if you're in a married relationship and you begin to consume porn, you double the odds that your marriage ends in divorce. For many, men in particular, porn consumption leads to physical, sexual dysfunction. For others, it stops you from wanting to have sex at all. Time Magazine 2016 writes this about porn addiction. Many of them are simply unable to experience a sexual response with a real live woman. They're only able to respond to pornography. In fact, they prefer pornography. What's fascinating is that the generation of 20-year-olds that we have now is the first generation in history that are having less sex than their parents in their 40s and 50s. With, even with all the hookup data we talked about, people in their 20s are having less sex than people in their 40s and 50s. Pornography is part of the problem. Now, coming back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. These are the issues. I told you I'd make the case that hookup culture hurts and that porn hurts. But there's hope and there's promise and there's a godly design in it for us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, it says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And just say that. If you're married, your marriage isn't your own. It belongs to God. Your sexuality isn't your own. It belongs to God. Your body is not your own. It belongs to God. And with that, you didn't design these things. God did. You did not design your body. God designed your body. 
God gave you that body. And as we look through this, we see that God has, within the context of a committed marital relationship, a beautiful design for sex and sexuality, a purpose. Because if you say it's just sex, you remove purpose. God gives it a purpose. We see in Ephesians 5 that the husband and wife are to be a picture to the world of Jesus and his affection for his bride. That the affection and intimacy between a husband and bride give a glimpse of the affection and intimacy that Jesus wants with the church. We see in Genesis chapter two, this idea that sex is where two people, two, two become one flesh. That there is a joining that happens, a beautiful interconnectedness that happens with sex. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, that sex is not just a me-centered act, but it's actually an act of self-giving love. Paul tells married couples, he tells the men, men, your body doesn't belong to just you. It belongs to your wife. And then he tells the women, your body doesn't belong to just you. It belongs to your husband. Because when you're married, two has become one. And sex isn't just about what can I get, but what do I get to give? And it's a picture of this self-giving love. Sex isn't supposed to use others and turn people into products so they can be dehumanized, undignified, and merely consumed. The beauty of the self-giving love we are designed for is that it is just what is best for our relationships, best for our health, best for our emotional and psychological well-being. And it's also a picture of the gospel because Jesus didn't come to earth just saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. He came to give everything for his bride, the church. This is the beauty of God's design and his purpose for sex. And I'll be honest, and some of you have heard this before, when it comes to hookup culture and porn, as I was preparing this, like this, this is my story, right? Pornography addiction is, is my story. And I love that Gary mentioned finding that magazine along, along the side of the road. I found, it started with me finding a lingerie magazine in my house. That's where it started. And I kept it secret and it grew and it got its clutches in me. And before anybody knew about it, a lot of damage had been done up here. And then I got married and I didn't fix it. And you know what? Just like they say here in this stat, I was a, I was a statistic. I didn't want to have sex with my wife. I just didn't want to. Talk about driving a wedge between me and my bride. First year of our relationship was absolutely miserable. It was my fault. I eventually confessed that to her and through confession and through people coming along, it was a journey. But one of the beautiful things about kind of that illustration with the forest is you have the well-walked path and you have the one that's, that's overgrown that every time you take that overgrown path, it becomes easier to take it the next time. And sometimes you gotta put people around you to make sure that that's the path you pick. But even as you research some of the stuff that I've, I've been going through, they'll tell you, you can rewire your brain. The healing can actually happen. But I was sharing this with my wife this week and she pointed something out that is true, but at the same time caught me off guard. And she said, Zach, that's my story too. And she gave me permission to share this because her backdrop is hookup culture. There's a time in my wife's life when she was distant from Jesus 
in which one night stands and hookups were a part of her, part of her lifestyle. So much so that in that brokenness, I remember having conversations when we were dating and leading up to marriage in which she shared concern that she could ever have a healthy marriage, that she could ever have a healthy sexual relationship because of all the things she had done. I got a picture of my wife and I. That's us on our wedding day on I will, I will point out, it took me 12 years to figure this out. I just noticed this two days ago when I found this photo. I'm holding my car keys in my hand. <laughs> it's a bright green lanyard. <laughs> I was ready to, ready to get out of there. Um, and next, next to that, 12, 12 years later, my wife and my four, my four kids. Now, we have, we've had struggles. We've had lots of hard conversations. But with the gospel comes hope and comes healing. And as I, as I read in kind of closing Titus 3, like for me, that hope and healing didn't come until I happened to be in a stage of life where I was married. There's a lot of single people in here too. You need to hear this. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean it takes marriage to fix it. Okay, that you can find purity and that purity can pave a way to intimacy with God in your singleness and that God's hope for you is holiness in your sexuality regardless of what your relationship status is. I want to close with Titus 3. He says, For we too were once foolish. And I put myself in this. For I too was once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. This is a human condition. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, that's Jesus, right? So, so we were the ones being foolish, enslaved by passions and pleasures, but then Jesus comes. The kindness of God, his love for mankind, Verse five, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, and that's important. He saved you, not because of you had the right internet blocker. He saved you, not because you bore the burden of the law. He saved you, not because you made all the right decisions, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration, that's the change that God kind of does in our hearts and renewal by the Holy Spirit as over time and in the context of a community that holds us accountable, our affections begin to change and healing happens. Verse six, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that having been justified by his grace, listen, justified by his grace, not justified by my goodness, not justified by my greatness, justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. That idea of an heir means you become a child of God and God doesn't wait for you to have everything fixed up before he adopts you, right? That's mercy, that's grace. I've tasted this in my own life. I've seen the hope and the healing the gospel brings. And I just wanna say, if you fall into the category of person where this is right now your struggle, whether it's hookups or it's porn, if this is your struggle and this is hiding in the dark somewhere, 
You need to begin by telling somebody. You gotta bring that crap to light. You gotta bring it up. James says we are to confess to one another because in the context of confession, you have someone that can one, hold you accountable, but two, remind you that you're forgiven. Because when we confess and repent, when we as the prodigal son turn away from our sin and run towards God, he receives us with open arms. And we're to model that for each other, okay? Don't give up hope. Healing and hope are ours in, in Jesus. If it's you, find someone, talk about it, confess. Reach for what God has for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you opportunity for us to worship here today together, for us to look at Corinthians together. I pray, Lord, that some of us have just been confronted today in a good, holy way. Or would you help us to make good, uncomfortable decisions? Would you continue to push and nudge us towards holiness? Lord, would you give us a, your heart and your eyes for the things we, people we might be attracted to, God? Would you help us to be disgusted by the things that disgust you, to love the things you love and hate the things you hate? Lord, we love you. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.